I'm David Bang, and from Impact Alpha, this is a special Agents of Impact podcast. So we think the game is really about flipping that script. What we need to do is design markets to serve the well-being of society and stop designing our society around serving the well-being of markets. That's Chris Jurgens of Omidyar Network, the leader of their Reimagining Capitalism initiative. In partnership with Omidyar Network, Impact Alpha is digging into the structural challenges at the heart of our economic system and the leaders designing markets to serve people and the planet, not the other way around. Follow the Capitalism Reimagined beat on impactalpha.com. Without further ado, let's jump right into my conversation with Chris. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. Great to be with you. We're kicking off today a project with you guys uh, at Omidyar Network, um, Reimagining Capitalism. You have been working on this for a while. I don't know whether you thought that it was going to be as timely and topical and hot topic as, as it's become. We think it's central to the conversation right now because reimagining our economic system has never been more urgent or important, particularly in this country, as we start to come out of COVID, a year that saw a K-shaped recovery and unprecedented inequality, uh, a racial justice movement fueled by the underlying structural racism we've had in our economy and our democracy, uh, and the rising threat of, of climate change. and, and now seeing more direct action on that with this administration. Well, I want to dig into all, all of those things. And, and as I say, it couldn't be more timely, but let's just um, help listeners understand um, both who you are and who Omidyar Network is and a little bit of how you came to the strategy. And then we'll dig into the, the details of the strategy. So I came into Omidyar Network from the U.S. Agency for International Development, where I led a portfolio focused on entrepreneurship and impact investing. Uh, and jumped to a Midyear network as they were long a philanthropic leader in in that same field. And many in your audience and the Impact Alpha audience will know ON for our work over the past decade of investing in impact entrepreneurs and playing a role in trying to build the field of impact uh, investing and, and bring more folks into it. And that was the, the role I, I had in the previous strategy was to, to lead those field building efforts. Yeah, I've, as a reporter, I've been tracking uh, Omidyar Network and Pierre Omidyar from from early eBay days, and then through the work that you guys have done to build the field of impact investing, and now this new work. How did you make that transition? So about three years ago, we embarked on a pretty fundamental shift in both strategy and structure in response to changes we saw in the world, right? Looking at the state of our economy after the 2016 election, the state of our democracy, we stepped back in as a philanthropy and asked, are we doing enough to get at the root cause issues of the big structural problems of inequality, of fraying social cohesion, of the failure of our systems to, to deal with structural racism and, and climate change, and decided it was time for us to make a change. So we did two things. We split up, <laughs> we spun out our portfolios that housed our impact investing work into six separate sister entities that still do really outstanding work driving change in sectors like education and financial inclusion using a combination of impact investing and other change strategies. But then second, we reset our strategy as Omidyar Network. Um, and that was really to respond to change that we think needs to happen at the level of, of core economic and societal systems, uh, capitalism, technology, uh, and democracy. And so fast forward today, our work is really centered on two main impact themes. Uh, our responsible technology work is focused on ensuring our digital world is safe, fair, and compassionate, and addressing challenges like how to deal with the power that tech platforms have amassed. 
and our reimagining capitalism work that we'll get into today is focused on shaping a new economy where markets can serve the interests of, of everyone in society. Pierre is the rare, you know, tech billionaire who's looking at the foundations and, and the sort of fundamental, you know, issues at, at play both in tech and in and in capitalism. Yeah. So our work on economic systems change starts from the point of view that we are capitalists. We come from Silicon Valley, where Pierre came from. We believe in the power of markets and entrepreneurial innovation to solve big problems. But we think the current manifestation of capitalism um, that we have, particularly in this country, is fundamentally broken. So while we believe in markets, we don't think that markets are naturally occurring phenomena. They, they are not inherently free. They are built. They're shaped by power, by politics, by people. And so we have to structure markets to get to the outcomes we want as a society. And we think we've had that fundamentally wrong for most of the past 40 years, thanks to Milton Friedman-inspired you know, neoliberal uh, ideology. You know, Under this kind of paradigm for thinking about the economy, those with power in the system have been designing a political economy that's really built around optimizing the efficiency of markets and then hoping that leads to the societal outcomes we want. That hasn't worked, full stop. Look at the direction of things in this country uh, across the board on economy, democracy, uh, environment. So we think the game is really about flipping that script. What we need to do is design markets to serve the well-being of society and stop designing our society around serving the well-being of markets. And for that doesn't mean tearing down capitalism, but it does mean reimagining it. We don't have all the answers to that, but we think we need new ideas, a new way to think about power, and a new set of rules that, that drive us towards a different sort of future. Well, let's take them one in turn, ideas, power, and rules. I mean, what what is an example of a sort of new idea that informs this reimagined uh, capitalism? Yeah. So on the idea side, we think this starts with values, the values that underpin what we're aiming for in the economy. The old paradigm prioritized individual liberty above all else. And if you have individual liberty, that will lead to optimal societal outcomes. We think we need a different set of values underpinning the economy that should be democratically determined uh, in a democracy like ours, but that would focus more on things like societal well-being, like ecological sustainability, like a commitment to anti-racism and dismantling white supremacy. And if we start with those values to guide what should business do, what should economic policy making do, rather than how do we make markets free and unfettered, that, that's where we need to start from. But I think we'll admit that this new paradigm doesn't have the, the crisp, this is the answer, this is the new paradigm yet, that um, small governments and uh, free markets uh, has on the other side. But we'd also say it's pretty evident now how fundamentally that system uh, has failed. And so we're working with a range of partners, with other philanthropies like Hewlett, with think tanks like Roosevelt, uh, with organizations like Groundwork Collaborative working on um, narratives to kind of build that architecture of what a new economic paradigm can be. There's a lot of talk, as you know, around, you know, the stakeholder economy as the contravailing idea to what had been the sort of shareholder primacy idea, which you referenced, Milton Friedman. Um, is that is that what you're talking about? It sounds like you're even going further to a kind of a fundamental kind of uh, cu cultural shift around, you know, sort of the purpose, not just of companies, but the purpose of finance, the purpose of government. We are indeed. We, we think this has to start at the, the fundamental values of how we think about economy serving 
um, society. And from that flows, what is the purpose of, of business? What is the role of workers? How does our, our democracy uh, need to work? But we also think um, shareholder primacy was is an important corollary and one of the things we, we need to fix. Um, we think shareholder primacy has served as a as a, a veritable engine of the inequality, which we see today. I mean, we have an economy today where 40% of Americans uh, can't afford an unexpected $400 expense, where the average grocery store worker makes $11 an hour. The average home care worker makes $27,000 a year. In the same economy over the last year, billionaires increased their net worth by $1.3 trillion. And that's linked to an economy that judges its success on stock market performance. We, we talk about stock market performance being good to, for the economy, but we fail to make the connection that 84% of stock are owned by the top 10% of uh, the wealth distribution, and that black households uh, own only 1.5% of equity value. So if you're optimizing your economy to generate returns to shareholders, and only you know half of Americans uh, and a third of, of black and brown households own, own stocks, by, by definition, you're, you're putting the forces of inequality on, on steroids. And as Rebecca Henderson you know, said in a recent one of these conversations, that inequality is uh, not a bug, it's a feature of the way we're currently organizing. Well, it's, it's interesting. You, you raised power, and I think power is central to this. And some, sometimes these conversations seem to assume that there's some kind of, you know, win-win for everybody. But in, in, in some cases, really, we're talking about contests for power that involve, you know, real conflict, maybe, whether it be, you know, workers and, and management in, in some cases, or just, you know, mobilization, popular mobilization for around racial justice, as you, as you referenced. I mean, there is kind of a power discussion that often doesn't really get engaged. You guys seem to be going straight on it. Yeah, this is quite central to, to our thinking and to how we've been influenced by the leaders in this field who've been at it much longer than us. And I think a term that the impact investing industry doesn't talk about is, is straightforwardly the role of, of power in shaping decision making. But we think this is fundamental. Like power has become concentrated in our current capitalism. Market power has translated into political power. And those with that market and political power can shape the rules of the game to, to further cement that. And so we're focused on building power among constituencies that have lost or lacked it completely from the first place, notably workers communities of colors, small businesses competing against large monopolies. And then the counterpart to that is we think we read real checks and counterweights on power where it's concentrated, like large monopolistic firms and on, on Wall Street. And so uh, our worker power uh, work is premised on there's a lot of things we need to do to help frontline uh, workers. A lot of focus historically is on we need, we need to build the skills of those workers, which is true. But where we're trying to get at the root cause systems level is the power of workers to bargain for their rights in the workplace and in Washington and state houses on policy that has systematically been weakened over the last 40 years with declining union membership. Uh, and we, we think is another fundamental cause of this rising inequality, and, and we need to build it back. So we're looking at things like new forms of worker organizing and extending work and organizing to sectors where you can't have unions today, um, sectors like care and other parts of the economy that labor law has ex excluded. 
um, we're looking at revenue models for, for worker organizing. Unions have been able to be a sustained source of power because they, they have a source of revenue uh, through union fees. Uh, and then we're looking at, at labor law. And we're also looking at raising the narratives of the real challenges workers are facing in their everyday lives, particularly uh, in, in times of COVID. And, and we've seen such excellent work uh, on this in the, in the last year, elevating uh, frontline workers. I'd, I'd recommend Molly Kinder's work at Brookings, looking at uh, grocery workers in, in COVID and then the outcomes, the, the realities they faced versus the profits that the, the companies were able to make in the past year. Well, let me just pick you, pick up on COVID and, and, and power and, and whether the disruption, as it were, and the sort of, I guess, uh, you know, at least lip service to the importance of, of essential workers, did that move us in the right direction or the wrong direction? I think we'd say it, it moved us in putting workers front and center in people's consciousness. The, the, the concept of essential workers, that our economy can't function uh, without healthcare workers, without restaurant and retail workers without the folks that delivered packages to all our homes when we were, we were stuck in the home. And, and that this has moved public consciousness. You look at Just Capital's polling on what matters for business uh, if they're to be committed to being good uh, corporate citizens in society and worker issues keep rising and rising of we want companies to treat their workers well and fairly. And certainly it's played out in our, our politics with uh, Joe Biden taking a pro-worker and pro-union stash, supporting legislation like the PRO Act, taking uh, going so far as to call out the workers uh, at the Bessemer plant uh, in Alabama um, at, at Amazon uh, and supporting that union drive. And so we think there there is movement in the right direction, but a, still a long way to go to those structural changes, both on the policy side uh, and and the worker organizing side. So you mentioned, you know, the, the legislation and the rules, but you also mentioned with that, that corporations and shareholders and, and others are um, in some sense trying to or, or being forced to respond to this, that in some ways the rules that might be in place to correct some of these imbalances are actually good for business as well, that that right? That some of this is, is what capitalism itself needs to, to, it needs to reimagine itself. It's not just from the outside. I think that's right. We see the, the, the challenge between trade-offs with business and societal outcomes as a matter of time horizon. If you're focused on the very short term, there are many more issues where it's a trade-off between short-term profits uh, and a stakeholder outcome. If you're oriented towards the, the long time horizon of a worker's career, or a young person saving retirement portfolio, those interests converge. You know what matters to both is a, a stable economy and a healthy democracy and a planet that's not uh, on fire. And in the business context, making investments that pay off over time, uh, research and development, uh, investments in workers, um, also have that long time horizon. But the conflict comes when we have the parts of the economy that are driving profit maximization in the short term. Uh, activist shareholders for public companies putting that pressure on, or the pressures PE firms are under to generate returns in a three to five year exit path, where you start to see those those hard trade-offs. And so that's a big set of the shifts we think we need to see is, yes, shifting our notion of what the purpose of business is in society and its sets of responsibilities, but shifting our horizon towards what do we need for business and our economy and our society to be successful, sustainable, and prosperous, and in the long term, 
Uh, and then those interests start to converge, including on the public policy side, right? The business being for tax cuts um, uh, always and everywhere versus for investments in, in infrastructure and physical infrastructure in the care economy, which are the foundations of long-term competitiveness. If you take that long-term time horizon, business should be all behind that agenda. And as you say, it's also playing out. I mean, you talk about the the demise of shareholder primacy, but this season shareholders have been very restive in pushing management towards some of these longer term thinking, particularly on climate, obviously, um, and some of the victories of shareholder resolutions and board proxy battles at some of the oil companies, as is well known, maybe su- suggest that investors and shareholders are getting this longer term um, message as well. Yes, the power of institutional investors uh, was demonstrated so powerfully in the recent ExxonMobil board director vote with uh, pension funds like CalPERS and other uh, major players forcing you know, such a dramatic, meaningful change on climate and decarbonization of an oil super major. And we think there's a lot of promise in such uh, asset owners that have a long-term time horizon that are representing the interests of their uh, beneficiaries as fiduciaries, looking at these systemic uh, issues of, of climate inequality and bring that to their, their stewardship and engagement with companies in a more forceful way. So we think uh, we're encouraged by these recent developments and see opportunities to work both with individual investors and the networks that are organizing them to bring this kind of forceful stewardship approach that we think can then serve as a counterweight in the financial sector to the, the pressures that are focusing for the short-term outcomes. And so the idea of, of asset owners with a long-term time horizon as a counterweight to speculators with a very short-term time horizon, that balance is out of whack today. And, and we think trends in financial markets, the growth of fiduciaries, the growth of large asset managers, you know, mean that there's systemic uh, opportunity for real change there. Well, so so this gets us, in a sense, to probably the nitty gritty, which you mentioned was the third part: r- rules. And um, some of those rules are very are very um, particular, right? Reporting rules, disclosure rules, transparency rules, you know, board governance kinds of rules of, of all sorts. Um, what are your couple or three favorite rules that need to be uh, put in as kind of guardrails around capitalism? So, on the stakeholder capitalism shifts, we point to three areas where we think there's it's important and there's exciting potential for, for progress. One is around who is a corporation accountable to? Is it accountable just to shareholders or is it accountable to stakeholders? Um, and there are reforms that could get at the fiduciary duty of companies and boards or that could get at worker voice in the boardroom, um, we think offer opportunity to kind of have that more balanced view of a corporate's role is to balance these stakeholder interests, not just serve shareholders. A second is, you know, squarely where the impact alpha audience is operating, which is a shift from viewing the performance of companies purely in financial terms versus the performance of companies and in investments, yes, with financial returns, but in light of both positive and negative impacts on people on the planet. And so, a movement towards a future where you have an integrated company report that looks not only at financial outcomes, but positive and negative uh, ESG outcomes. And there, there is real movement right now at the SEC on mandatory ESG disclosure, also in the EU, also on global standards harmonization, which we think is really uh, promising. 
Uh, and the third loops back to what we were just talking about, which is you know guardrails that can curb short-term pressures in, in finance and decision-making in corporate finance that's focused on financialized outcomes. How do we uh, you know, optimize a financial structure to take advantage of tax codes is what drives decision, to how do we set up the incentives that drive long-term investment? How do we encourage more investment in R&D, more investment in workers, uh, and not just financialization um, mechanisms? I mean, it's, it's striking that over the past decade, more capital has net come out of the stock market through buybacks and actually gone in. Uh, and it's this result of like, we're moving towards an economy that is more and more financialized and less and less focused on the, the real economy. So these investments in the real economy, we think is important on the public sector side and in corporate America. We started out as sort of saying, you know, everybody's talking reimagining capitalism now. And it's not totally an exaggeration if you think about the direction. For example, you mentioned the Biden administration. I mean, the spending plans that have come out, I mean, just writ large represent a kind of new way of thinking about the role of government, at least new in recent history, as well as a kind of sort of economic theory that, you know, we're going to rebuild from the bottom up and that sort of making lower income people more secure and more prosperous is actually the long-term growth plan. That has not been the operative predominant uh, economic theory of, of, of recent decades. The president himself talks about, you know, a paradigm shift um, and people from the outside, I don't think he's necessarily assumed the mantle. People from the outside are saying it's on the scale of, you know, the New Deal, you know, at, at, and, and Roosevelt in the in the 30s in, in that depression. I mean, is that what we're talking about? Is that level of, of realignment? I think it is. I think this is the, the, the level of shift in how we think about our economy and the role uh, of government that is necessary to respond to the magnitude of the challenges we're, we're having with inequality and other issues. And so, you know, a couple pillars to that, this notion of public investment, you know, neoliberals would have you say that keeping government out of everything uh, and minimizing taxes uh, and deregulation always and everywhere is, is good for economic outcomes. And uh, public sector taxation or public investment is, is almost everywhere a, a drag on the economy. I mean, the evidence is there that, that that is just not the case. I mean, look at the work of Heather Boucher now in the Council of Economic Advisors, formerly at Washington Center for Equitable Growth, and, and her colleagues at that organization, the evidence around what, what drives growth in the economy. Um, but public investment, particularly in infrastructure, you know, is a powerful driver of growth. And we need to change the perception that the public, the, the private sector is the only thing in society that, that drives this. It's It's... It's again about that long-term infrastructure we, we need in physical infrastructure, in care infrastructure, um, in the public goods that allow the economy to to run. Uh, and then the second you you notice notice you know this notion of building from the the middle class out or the the bottom up and how that drives direct and immediate uh, economic growth if we're getting money in the pockets to people that are going to go out and spend it right away. When we saw that in the, the stimulus checks of the people immediately going into, out and spending that at the restaurants and small retailers, we need to come back from COVID. And the whole jobs agenda is around getting more high quality jobs for working class people who are going to go out and spend that in the real economy. Um, and the, these notions of, you know, building from, you know, uh, 
an economy that works for everyone is going to be a higher growth economy. And the role of public investment to stimulating that is, we think, fundamental to this, this shift in thinking that we need so urgently in this moment. What do you think the time horizon of this of this shift is? I've been, you know, there's always a kind of things move extremely slowly until they move very fast. Um, and I think we've seen that a little bit, as, as you mentioned, in the climate context. It's been, that's obviously been a long-term and very slow-growing um, action agenda, shall we say. But then in recent months, um, all of a sudden, you know, it seems like it's all anybody can talk about and every company is has to shift. And obviously, there's a ton more to do, but at least the default assumptions have flipped in a sense. And now what used to be the mainstream is now sort of the laggards and the, what used to be the leaders are now kind of becoming the mainstream. And um, the, 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 the economic issues or the inequality issues and certainly the racial justice issues possibly even more intractable than that. But on the other hand, the right incentives, the right rules, as you said, um, couldn't the direction shift and, and things move, move rather quickly? I think we'd agree that things have moved faster, particularly in the last six months, than even optimistic uh, proponents of, of this economic worldview would have predicted. And that we have to be uh, aware that this may be a short window of opportunity and aware of the forces that will oppose this change. And we're still very, very early uh, in this ball game. Um, our democracy is in a very fragile pace. So pa passing things legislatively is, is obviously fraught. Uh, and then the political uh, constellations of power are complicated as well. Um, we're thinking a lot about the role of business in democracy and our politics. And while business has, some businesses have done great things to stand up for democracy and against the insurrection and come out for pieces of this Biden agenda, the, the main sources of Washington business political power, like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, still largely oppose this entire uh, agenda. And so, we think another important role for business and, and investors is to shift the role they're playing in politics in Washington, as it's one of the things currently standing in the way of a broader-based coalition that moves towards this change. And increasingly seeing companies in a different place than some of these trade associations. And so um, that's something to keep an eye on, we think. Indeed. indeed. And so so maybe this is the, the way to close it out, but you did talk about the power struggle. You've talked about worker power. You've talked about, we've talked a little bit about shareholder power. We've talked about, as you said, even corporate, let's say, leadership or some parts of corporate leadership um, mobilizing. But what about a real, you said a broader coalition. What about the real popular basis for this new economic thinking? Somehow we've gotten all turned upside down and somehow the the, the 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 populist position is is in a sense the position of inequality or the position of of, of extraction and and whatnot and and somehow the egalitarian policy has been derided as somehow elitist and so how how do we put a popular underpinning and a, and a mobilization beneath all this so that it, there's kind of the sticking power and and frankly the the the, the oomph to make it happen. Yeah, I want to approach this with full humility um, as a philanthropy new to this space. The, the, this fight for a more just and equitable and anti-racist economy has been led on the ground by grassroots and racial justice organizations uh, for decades. And so 
any progress we see stands on their shoulders. One opportunity that we see, um, given where we sit as a philanthropy, is how do we build bridges across these constituencies that are now pushing for change? Because they do kind of live in separate worlds, racial and economic justice organizations, climate justice organizations, this audience of the impact investing community, uh, progressive business networks that are trying to push forward on stakeholder capitalism, come from different places, um, different theories of change, won't agree on everything. But in terms of some of the shifts we want to see in our economy and what we want business and investor decision-making and behavior to look like, there's a lot of alignment. And so we're excited by some um, efforts that we're involved in and that others have left, New Capitalism Project, Imperative 21, um, some great funder and grassroots tables that are trying to bring together these coalitions so we can have a broad-based movement. Because you know, we found you know, major change happens when you have both um, grassroots pressure and some folks from the inside game, from the establishment, come across. And so um, that's what we're, we're hoping to see is this broad-based coalition um, that can really push for, for the change that's so important right now. Well, I want to tell uh, listeners that uh, if you want links and, and, and background on some of the um, groups and initiatives that Chris has named here, um, ch check out the post in, in Impact Alpha. And we're looking forward, Chris, um, to taking on um, all, all three of those buckets with you in the months ahead, ideas, power, and and rules, and um, uh, looking looking forward to, to your um, bridge building, as you said, between grassroots and, and, and power structures and, and, and seeing what we can make of this and reimagining capitalism with you. So thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, David. We're so grateful for the work Impact Alpha does in this space, and we're looking forward to partnering with you on this effort. That's going to do it for this special Agents of Impact podcast. You can find links to many of the organizations we've discussed and read more about our Capitalism Reimagined project with Omidyar Network at impactalpha.com. Big thanks to Chris Jurgens and to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha, investment news for a sustainable edge. Till next time.